All right, this morning, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at the first uh, couple verses, first 16 or so verses of this chapter. But uh, first, I would say that I I would contend that one of the best descriptions and and depictions of the grace of God actually comes from a well-known and well-beloved children's fantasy novel. I would say that, that C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which, of course, I'm sure many of us have read, um, is the first of his Chronicles of Narnia series. And there's an, e- there's an intriguing, intriguing scene in the beginning of this, of this book. And if you remember, and I'll just try and summarize quickly, because I'm sure most of us are familiar, but the Pevensey children, Lucy and Peter and Susan and Edmund, they have just entered the world of Narnia. They go through this wardrobe, through the coaxing of their youngest Lucy. And they go through and they just enter this whole new realm. And they encounter Mr. Beaver. Remember that? And they come to Mr. Beaver. And it's here that they, they eventually find refuge in Mr. Beaver's home. And they're talking over this dinner. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are there. And they're talking about all these sorts of things. And it's here where Mr. Beaver reveals that they're not just there by accident. They didn't just find Narnia by happenstance. They're actually fulfilling a prophecy, right? Of the, the two sons of Adam and the two daughters of Eve. And they're fulfilling this prophecy that was long foretold. But during the conversation, the topic turns to the character and this foreboding character that everyone keeps talking about, but no one ever has, has seen yet. It is Aslan. And there's this really sort of just like this weird like tone that comes around when everyone talks about him because he's just this sort of foreboding character. And then Susan says, who's, who's Aslan? And Mr. Beaver re- responds, he says, Aslan, why, why you don't know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. You know, he keeps going, but C.S. Lewis was pretty adamant about the fact that Aslan was sort of a representative figure of Christ. C.S. Lewis was a Christian. He was also a contemporary of uh, Tolkien at the time, and I think Tolkien was a, a Catholic, I believe. Um, but regardless, he, he, the whole book is, you could somewhat draw pictures and allegories to the Christian life. And Aslan was, by C.S. Lewis's words, a, a, a picture, a representative figure of Christ. But Mr. Beaver continues as he's describing Aslan in this scene. He says, I tell you, he is the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. And don't you know he who is the king of beasts is Aslan? The lion, the great lion, and anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And Lucy asks a correct question, then he isn't safe? But Mr. Beaver Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If you remember that, I think that was a, a scene that really will stick with you. Because Aslan is this character that's for them. He's going against the wicked witch. But I love how Mr. Beaver says that, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Aslan is definitely good, but he's not necessarily safe. He's a lion. And I think the same can be said of God and his grace. You may think of, what What are you talking about? But I think that God's grace isn't necessarily safe in human terminology, in human thinking, I think actually a lot of the time that God and His grace can seem a bit unfair. Actually, maybe even a lot unfair. 
And I think Matthew 20 really shows that to us. Look at Matthew 20. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard. And whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. And again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here idle all the day? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard. And whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So... When even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the first, from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil, because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. This is, of course, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And just to really quickly summarize what we just read, what happens is this, this vineyard owner, he owns this large property. And he hires these guys. And when it says at about the third hour, that's about 3 o'clock in the morning. And he goes out, they start their work day pretty early, obviously. I couldn't imagine that. But they start out, they, he hires these workers come, and they agree to terms, a, a penny as it says in your Bible, but it's actually a denarius, which is sort of the standard wage for a day's work. So they agree upon the terms, and they go out and they start working. But the, but the vineyard owner does this again at 9 a.m., at 12 p.m., at 3 p.m. He does it again. He does it three more times. So now there's four distinct groups of guys working in the field. And now it comes, as it says, at the 11th hour, which, out, which actually means it's about 5 p.m. There's only one more hour of work left to be done in the day. And he hires another group of guys. So now there's five distinct groups of workers laboring in this vineyard, and they've all agreed on a certain set of wages. And rational logic would conclude that the first group, who's been there the longest, they should receive more wages, right? That's only rational. That's only fair. That's what I would think. But something happens that's very strange, very interesting. His master calls them in, and they're about to receive their pay, and they all get paid the same amount. So when even come, the Lord says in verse 8, Saith unto his steward, call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the first unto from the last unto the first. And when they came, they they that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny, the same as what the guys received that started working at three a.m. is what the same amount is the the guys that started working at five p.m. Like that's like a grave injustice in my eyes. That's just almost like a slap in the face. You think I'm worth just a penny? Just one day's wage? 
And I just think it's interesting that these guys who have appeared to be working a lot harder, they thought the same thing. They're saying, what are you doing? This isn't fair. We're worth more. We've worked harder. And they, they, they complain, they groan. Look at what it says in verse 11 or verse 10. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and that has made them equal to us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. They're appealing to this man's sort of humanness, his, his, his sense of equity, saying, Look at all this stuff we've had to endure. And you're, you think that's worth the same amount of these guys that have just worked at evening? This isn't fair. This isn't right. But I love the master's response. His response is sort of short. It's sort of, you can kind of, I kind of read it with sort of this like sort of terse attitude. He says, look at verse 13. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? You could also re- rephrase that last, uh, or you could retranslate that last phrase, and, and it says, Who are you to begrudge my generosity? Who are you to say what I will do with what is mine? And I think that Jesus is saying that, that even though it seems on the surface that this master, this vineyard, he's acting unfair in this sort of, this sort of scandal of wages, Jesus is actually saying he's not acting unfair. He's actually not acting unfair at all. In fact, he's responding quite similarly, I would say, to how God responds to us. You know, in the same way that this vineyard over gives all these laborers the same wages, God gives all sinners the same grace. There's no distinction. You can't work your way into more grace, more favor, more acceptance. You can't earn your way into that. Grace isn't a commodity. God's salvation isn't something that you can be bought. It can't be bought or won or bartered or bargained for by your efforts. Grace is simply and purely a gift. It's a one-way transaction. As one writer says, that which is a gift of grace must not at all be earned, purchased, or procured by any works performed as a condition or right or title unto it. The condition of a free gift is just take and have. The condition of the gospel is just believe and trust. Take and have. There's no other conditions. There's no other prerequisites. And this master... He wasn't obligated to hire these workers. He wasn't coerced or forced or, or coaxed into getting these guys. He went out in search of them. It says in verse 1, or excuse me, uh, yeah, verse 1, that is like unto, for the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. He went out in search of them. And I would say the same thing is like God's grace. That, that God's grace comes down in search of us. It hunts us down with a relentless, I would say, pursuit. Giving us, as this master did, responsibility and opportunity. 
You know, there's a great poem, and I've referenced this before. It's called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's about a 180-something line poem. And the whole time, it talks about how this, this hound of heaven is chasing after a hare. And the picture is that that's the same way that God chases us. That even as we are trying to run away from God, God relentlessly pursues us as a hound is chasing after his prey. And it says, he says in his confession, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of mine own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. He's running away from God. He does not want anything to do. But look at, this is the phrase that's repeated throughout the, throughout the lines. It says, Nigh and nigh draws the chase with unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy. And past those noised feet, a voice comes yet more fleet. Lo, not content thee who is not content in me. Forever and always, that's what God is doing with us. As we flee from Him, He's chasing us even faster. As we run away from Him, He's pursuing us, as it says, with unperturbed pace. This poem was really influential back in the early 1900s. In fact, it even influenced Tolkien himself. He, he read this poem many times and he was greatly influenced along with G.K. Chesterton. And he said that when Francis Thompson died, a great, great poet died along with him. But the grace of God... I, I believe is like that. It chases us down. It runs after us with unperturbed pace and deliberate speed. And, and it's, it's, it's this that is it's God's active acceptance of us. It's his, his active love for us that doesn't wait and it doesn't sit around for us to seek after it first. It goes out in search of us. It goes out in hunt of us. And that's what this gospel is. That The gospel that's all over your Bible is just this. It's the, it's the announcement of the undeserved and the, and the unmerited and unconditional and unfailing favor of God. That doesn't wait for us to search after it, but it comes out in search of us. And it, it doesn't care for the respectiveness or the worth of, of your life. It just envelops you. It just surrounds you. God's grace isn't a system where we can barter for more holiness by performing better and working harder. I, I think that's sort of what these guys were, were saying in some degree. That I'm worth more because I've worked harder. Look at all these things I've had to endure, so please give me more because I'm worth it. That's not the way God's system works. God's system is just, this is what... It is. It's perfect righteousness right in front of you. Just take and have. All of grace is wrapped up in God's unspeakable gift of His Son, as Paul calls Jesus. Unspeakable gift of His Son to the sinner. And in the gospel, grace is given equally to everyone, regardless of their past, making it seem a little unruly, a little undomesticated, a little, dare I say, unfair. It sort of is unfair that someone can be on their deathbed and cry out to God and say, Forgive me, I'm a sinner. And he receives the same grace that we have received if we were saved when we were five. You know, in human logic, that seems a little unfair. 
But if you look at it another way, it's completely fair. Because Jesus, just like this master of this story, I believe, he shreds all sense of deservedness and entitlement. And he gives this forgiveness liberally and lavishly on us. And to us, this sort of thing might seem a little bit unfair, as I said. But, who, but I think that Christ, when we, when we say those sorts of things, that how can you do that? How can you save someone like that? Jesus responds the same way, I believe. I believe he would say, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Who are you to begrudge my generosity? Who are you to put conditions on my unconditionality? You know, whenever we say, that's not fair, I think we stand on dangerous ground, especially when we're addressing God. And I think I've, I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating that, spoiler alert, you don't want God to be fair. You don't want God to be fair with you. If God were treating you in fairness, we would be in hell already because of our sin. One minute sin is worthy of eternal hell because we've broken God's perfect and holy law. And the only, the only, uh, reper- the only repercussions for that is eternal judgment. Because we've broken God's holy and eternal decree. And so if, if God were to deal fairly with us, we'd already be burning. We'd already be in that hell. And if God only dealt with you based on what you deserve, we'd already be condemned forever because of our sins. And so you could say this, that pleading for God's fairness is actually a cry out for spiritual suicide. It's like crying out for the eternal death, just, just give it to me. But thankfully, God doesn't deal with us in fairness. He actually deals with us unfairly. Not on based on what we deserve, but based on what we don't deserve. The only hope for you, for me, for every believer ever is God's glorious unfairness. And God giving us not what we deserve, but just the very opposite. Our only hope is dependent on the fact that God's Son, Jesus Christ, was dealt with unfairly by the Father so that the, so that the Father could deal unfairly with you. Giving you life when you deserved death and giving you salvation when you deserved damnation. See, God dealt unfairly with His Son so that He could deal unfairly with us. God bore on Him the brunt of your sin that He, he could deal with you in salvation. And so when you're tempted to shake your fist at God and say, That's not fair. When we're tempted to act like these laborers and say, That's not right. This is unjust. This is unfair. I think we have to remember Jesus' cry on the cross. Where He says, My God, my God, why hath you forsaken me? And at that moment, in that very second, God the Father separates from the Son. Because the weight of the world's sin was put on Jesus. Jesus literally became the sinner so that we could have His righteousness. In that moment, God turns away. And now Jesus has really suffered what we might, a withdrawal from God. One writer says it this way, that Christ suffered the withdrawal on our behalf so that you and I would never have to experience God's terminal silence. Or you could say it this way, that Jesus endured the brunt of God's undeserved justice so that you and I could enjoy the beauty of His undeserved grace. 
That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what Jesus has done for all the sinners of the whole world. That this is, this, this is God the Father enacting what the old ancient Christians called the glorious exchange. Where Jesus takes your sin and puts his righteousness on your account. As, it says, one writer says, The sinless one is condemned, the guilty goes free, the blessed bears the curse, and the cursed bears the blessing. The life dies, and the dead live. The glory is covered with shame, and the shame is covered with glory. That's what happens at the cross. That's what happens when we believe, when we, as, as the other writer said, take and have the gospel. That God enacts this glorious, this beautiful of exchange like that modern hymn, His Robes for Mine. A wonderful exchange. God the Father can deal with us in righteous unfairness because He dealt with His Son in the same God was completely righteous in this act. Jesus becoming sin, he deserved that justice. And now we who are standing in Jesus' righteousness, we get to enjoy the beauty of God's grace. That was just the the crazy outrageous scandal of the cross is just very that. That Jesus becomes the sinner so that we might become the sons of God. Let me read you this one passage. He's one of my favorite writers. His name is Horatius Bonner. And he says this, God spared him not, that is Christ, that he might spare us. And he parted with him that he might not part with us. And he gave him up to the curse that he might obtain for us the blessing. And he poured out on him the vials of his wrath that he might pour out on us the full measure of his infinite love. God dealt with Jesus as a sinner in order that he might deal with us as righteous, he inflicted on him all that should have been inflicted on us in order that he might bestow upon us all that should be bestowed on him. And he does not ask us for, to pay for it or to endeavor to deserve it or to qualify ourselves for receiving it, but just that we should consent unto it. Just take and have because Jesus has done it all. And as believers, this is our lifeline. Not trying to, trying to engage in some transaction with God. Like, look, here's what I'm doing, so give me my just reward. It's God, I am nothing, and I don't deserve anything. I don't even deserve to be invited to work in your vineyard. And yet you have given me opportunity and responsibility to be here because of your grace. Our only duty is to believe and trust and what God has done. And I think the cry of the believer is just the cry of that father in Mark 9. Where he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's my constant prayer. <laughs> I believe in this, but God, just help the unbelief that remains. Because I don't believe fully. I don't believe how I ought. And I think that this, you could say, is the heartbeat of the gospel. This, this unmerited and unlimited favor of God is the rhythm of Scripture. And I would say this, that it's unconditionally free and it's beautifully dangerous. In our terms, it's a little dangerous, a little unfair. That it can save the most worthless person and the person who's been in church his whole life. It's the same salvation. It's the same Savior. And praise God for that. As, as Paul says, that God is no respecter of persons. He's not partial in his eyes. 
Or as you know, the common colloquial saying is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And as you come before Jesus, we're all sinners. But thankfully, because of Jesus, we're all made saints because of Him. That's the dangerous measure of God's grace. And I'm so thankful that that hound of heaven has chased after me. And he's still pursuing me. Nigh and nigh draws the chase with unperturbed pace. Let's pray.